So this is chapter 18, an old monkey. For some time the Pandavas, that's the five brothers, lived in Badrikashrama on Mount Gandhamadana. Each day they rose with the sun at dawn, so enchanting it dissolved sins. And they thought, today Arjuna will return from Devaloka, from heaven. But the days grew into weeks, the weeks into months, and there was no sign of him. Yudhishthira, the oldest brother, was at perfect peace with himself. He was happy to sit with the rishis of Badrikashrama all day long, especially the ancient one, and listen to their illustrious lore. The mountain was so suffused with the spirit, it was hardly a place of the earth. And Yudhishthira's heart was full with the sanctity of that hermitage. Some nights he dreamt he saw Nara and Narayana sitting at Dhyana at a cave mouth. These are these two divine beings who were supposed to have been born into the world as Krishna and Arjuna to rid the world of evil. And their faces were familiar. When he awoke, he remembered nothing of his dreams. Bhima, which is the second brother, also extremely strong and the son of the wind, and Draupadi, the common wife of these five, were more restless than Yudhishthira, though their impatience of the Kamyakavana, the last place they were in exile, was a thing of the past. The two of them took to going on long walks through the cedar forests of Gandhamadana. Those were fragrant woods and the very air was like a blessing. And so indeed was that mountain named Gandhamadana for its scented cedar. But one day the two of them wandered along a trail that wound its way steeply down the mountainside, a trail they hadn't explored before. After an hour the path grew less precipitous and they, and they made their way into a thick forest over which an aura of mystery hung. It was darker here than in the forest higher up because the trees were more tropical and grew closer to one another. Bhima and Draupadi had to walk slowly. They had gone half an hour into the forest following the trail still when Draupadi seized Bhima's hand and made him stop. Can you smell it? She breathed in ecstasy. Ah Bhima, can't, can't you smell that fragrance? Bhima sniffed the air and there was no mistaking it. A scent straight out of heaven was born on the breeze stirring in that forest. What is it? Draupadi asked. I have never smelled anything like it in all my life. They walked deeper into the trees, following the unearthly scent to its source. As they went on, it grew stronger, pervading the forest headily. Bhima shut his eyes and said, I feel I am walking into Swarga, heaven. The scent was irresistible, and following it blindly, they came into a small clearing. Draupadi stopped. Look, she whispered, pointing. Growing out of the earth under a punnaga tree was a little flower, scarlet and streaked with gold. And this flower filled the whole forest with the heavenly scent. Gingerly Bhima and Draupadi crept forward, as if the tiny thing might wilt and die if they set foot too clumsily. When they were near, Draupadi said, It must be the saugandika the rishis told us about. No other flower on earth can smell like this. Bhima sniffed the air again. He walked a few paces beyond where the scarlet flower grew. He said, the scent grows stronger. There are more of these inside the forest. Draupadi couldn't help herself anymore. She knelt down quickly and plucked the little flower. Sniffing it and sighing, she said, I must take it for Yudhishthira. The Muni said, it stays fresh for a year after being plucked. But Bhima, I want some more for myself. You must get them for me from wherever they grow. It's too late today. It'll be dark in an hour. Their scent isn't strong. The flowers grow deep in the vana and there may be more danger there. Let us go back now and I will come again tomorrow by myself and bring you as many as you like. The bright flower nestled in Draupadi's hand and it barely covered a tenth of her palm. Reluctantly she said, Very well, but promise me that you will come tomorrow. I must have some more of these. They fill me with such delight. 
The rishis of the Badri Kashma confirmed that the flower was indeed a saugandhika and the hermitage was soon awash with its scent. Yudhishthira kept it beside his sleeping mat in an earthen vessel filled with spring water and the next morning it was as fresh as it had been when Draupadi had plucked it. The old Muni of Badri said, It is a blessed flower that grows in Kubera's garden. Kubera is the god of money. It will not fade for months. Its heart is strong. The next morning at the crack of dawn, Bhima set out alone for the forest. He went by the same path that Draupadi and he had taken the previous day and soon reached the Purnaga tree where they had found the Saugandika. Through the vana, with invisible fingers, the maddening aroma reached for the sun of the wind. Following it, Bhima walked deeper and deeper into that forest. Soon the forest was a very different world. Knotted trees with immense boles grew here, their branches so entwined that it was always twilight. Startling flowers that did not grow near the hem of the jungle covered the trees and thickets in gaudy profusion. Birds with livid plumage called in the branches, birds he had never seen before. As he went on, the vana grew stranger and stranger. But Bhima pressed on. The scent of the saugandika was stronger, but he realized he had a good way to go before he arrived where the flowers grew. The silence of this jungle oppressed him, as if someone or something Perhaps a Vanadevata, a forest god, watched him with a thousand eyes, hidden in stamen and leaf, and did not want him to go any further. To fight this feeling, Bhima raised the conch he carried at his waist. Conch is this large seashell that they blow, and blew a ringing blast on it. Sleeping lions were roused in their caves. Bhima heard a growl or two, a desultory roar here and there as he plunged on. The Pandavas smiled. This was far better than the intolerable silence. But lions were not all he roused with his conch. Someone else lay asleep in the forest, someone from another age. He had come here just to meet Bhima, for he had something in common with the Pandava. That being now lifted his tail and crashed it down across the path beside which he sat, leaning against a tree. He was a warrior from another Yuga. A yuga is a, an age of several thousand years when everyone was much grander than in Bhima's dwindled time. But Bhima was not to know any of this, save from stories he had heard, which he hardly took literally. Like men of every age, he too thought that all times had been exactly like the one he lived in. Bhima heard that crash like thunder falling on earth and ran towards it. Perhaps some Rakshasa, demon, had heard his conch and was challenging him. Nothing could be better. How bored he had been for longer than he cared to think surrounded by rishis and brahmanas who spoke of nothing but peace and the Atman, the soul, and moksha, salvation. How he longed for a good fight. It would restore his spirits like nothing else. He loped eagerly through the vana, quickly as the wind, until he rounded a bend in the trail and saw a wizened old monkey before him. His back turned, his wrinkled head cradled in the crook of his brown arm, and apparently fast asleep. Though the monkey was quite a small creature himself, he had the longest, finest tail Bhima had ever seen. Both tail and owner lay stretched squarely across the path along which Bhima was rushing to meet whoever had made that earth tremble. Bhima growled in annoyance. Weakly, the monkey raised his head to see who had disturbed his nap. Bhima towered over him, his brawny hands on his hips. The Pandava saw the monkey was an ancient of his kind. His golden face was covered by fine wrinkles. His eyes, though bright, were full, so full of age it was impossible to reckon how old he was. He could have been a thousand years. He was so worn and thin. 
Bhima growled again, hoping to scare the little creature away. But then the monkey spoke to him in perfect human speech, chaste old language in fact. In a frail voice he said, Young man, why do you make so much noise? I was sleeping peacefully, dreaming fine dreams, and you come blundering through the jungle, blasting on your conch? He regarded the impatient Bhima out of shrewd eyes, with directness the Pandava found disrespectful and somehow unnerving too, though he could not think why. Bhima stood breathing heavily, taken aback. Still using exquisite old language that scholars do, the monkey said again in his rambling way, Young Kshatriya, Kshatriya's warrior, for so you may well be, are you a stranger to these parts? I have never met another human being in this forest who makes such a noise. This is no battlefield, young man. Yes, you are surely a stranger here that you disturb all the jungle folk with your din. He paused again and his shining eyes never left Bhima's face. The Pandava was still speechless with surprise. And where are you going deep into the Vana? Don't you know this is a dangerous place and the forest is quite impenetrable not far from here? Don't you know anything at all, young fellow, that you plunge on heedless blowing your conch? Bhima was angry by now, but he felt so inexplicably drawn to the little old monkey that he still said nothing. He growled again, trying desperately to collect his wits. The monkey, who seemed to see clearly into everything that went on inside Bhima's head, added, Come, sit beside me for a while. I picked some fruit for myself. He uncurled his arm and pushed out an amazing heap of fresh fruit, pear and plum, peach and apple, offering them to the Pandava. My advice to you, young Kshatriya, is that you sit down and eat a few fruit with me, and then turn back to where we, wherever you came from. Though I really cannot imagine where that might be, or who you are for that matter. At last Bhima found his voice. He gave a short roar and cried, You are the strangest monkey I have ever seen, talking like a man and in an old language. Who on earth are you? His eyes narrowed. Are you a monkey at all, or a Vanadevata, a forest god, who have a you have assumed a monkey's form? Are you a Rakshasa? If it's a fight you want, show me what you really look like and let us begin. The monkey laughed. Rakshasa? Fight? You are certainly a peculiar young man. Can't you see my fine prince? I am just a tired old monkey, too weak to even move from where I lie. What is all this about Vanadevatas and Rakshasas? And you still haven't told me who you are or what you are doing in this forest. He gave a groan. Ah, I feel so ill today and you won't let me sleep. Bhima, Bhima drew himself up and said in his most superior tone, Monkey, I am Bhima the Pandava. I am the son of Vayu, the wind, and I am in a hurry. Let me pass. The monkey mumbled disapprovingly to himself. In a hurry? And where are you going in such a hurry? Don't you want to take my advice, it seems? Sit down and eat some fruit, young Pandava, and then turn back. It is not safe to go on, I tell you. Ah, but the young never listen, do they? They must learn from their own foolishness. I don't want your advice, monkey, snapped Bhima heartily. I want you out of my way so I can go on. Truly I am in your way, young Kshatriya, but I am so old I cannot move. Otherwise would I dare lie in the way of Vayu's son? Why, I tremble even to hear that God's name. But I cannot move, so just step over me and be on your way, Bhima, if you are determined to go on. Now Bhima frowned. You are older than I am. I cannot step over someone older than me. He laughed mockingly. But if you insist, I shall really have to make the leap of faith as Hanuman did over the sea. So Hanuman is from a previous uh, epic where he's this great monkey who's leaped across the ocean. 
That I cannot say. But, uh, Hanuman? Who is he? Who is this Hanuman whose very name makes your eyes shine? Bhima cried, I can't believe this. You a monkey and you don't know who Hanuman was? The old monkey shook his head. Bhima looked down his nose at the creature now. He said, you deserve to be stepped on. That being a vanara yourself, you don't know about the greatest vanara that ever was. Immortal Hanuman. Really? I said the monkey softly. But Bhima was not finished. Hanuman was the strongest, wisest, most revered monkey that ever lived. He fought on Rama's side in Lanka. Why, it was he who discovered Sita in the Ashokavana in Ravana's palace and leapt across the sea to bring her Rama's message. He is a legend not only among monkeys but among men as well. He has the place of a god. We worship Hanuman and you have not heard of him. Listen, monkey, Hanuman is one of the greatest scholars of all time. He is a master of his mind, perfectly devoted to Rama. Hanuman is a Jeevan Mukta, a liberated soul. He is also Chiranjivi. He lives forever. A smug smile spread across Bhima's face. And just like me, Hanuman is a son of the wind, a Vayuputra. Yes, Hanuman is my brother, as strong as I am, perhaps even slightly stronger. <laughs> the, li <laughs> the little monkey's eyes grew round. But Bhima had finished his eulogy of Hanuman and he said again, Let me pass, old monkey, I am in a hurry. I have to find the heart of this jungle, for I must take the Saugandikas back for Draupadi. So that's what you're after. Well, as I've told you, I'm tired and ill and really too old to move. If you knew how old I am, you would understand why I cannot move. I fancy I must be as old as your Hanuman. Bhima growled, you can't be as old as Hanuman, monkey. You don't know what you're saying. Well, anyway, the fact is that I can't move and being such a noble young Kshatriya, you will not step over me. So really, there is just one solution to our problem, that you move my tail aside and pass, said the monkey, smiling sweetly. Grumbling to himself, Bhima crouched down beside the old Vanara and took his fine golden tail in his hand to move it out of his way. The tail would not budge. Growling, Bhima put both his hands to the task. Not an inch could he move the monkey's tail. Great Bhimasena, tameless Vayu son, slayer of Hidimba, Kirmira, Kimira and Baka, great demons from the previous readings, began to pant with his efforts. Beads of sweat stood out on his brow, but he could not shift that wizened old monkey's tail by a hair's breadth. The monkey cried in his reedy voice, What is the matter, O Vayuputra, <laughs> that you cannot move an old Vanara's tail? Or are you making fun of me again? <laughs> Full of quick shame, Bhima strained at the tail, grunting and roaring, but to no avail. Suddenly he felt a spinning dizziness. He felt every ounce of his vast strength drain out of his arms all his limbs, and being absorbed uncannily into the monkey. The Pandava keeled over where he knelt. Mighty Bhima fainted on the mud track, vanquished by a monkey's tail. <laughs> when he stirred from his faint, he saw the little old monkey had vanished. In its place, a magnificent Vanara knelt beside him, smiling, and sprinkled cooled water on his, cool water on his face. This was a very different monkey altogether, taller than Bhima, golden-furred, resplendent. Bhima sat up weakly, shaking his head. He folded his hands and asked, Who are you, magnificent one? The towering creature smiled and replied, Just an old monkey whose tail the great Bhima was trying to move. Bhima bowed his head. Forgive me for being arrogant, Vanara. I take back everything I said to you. I beg you, tell me who you are. But you know who I am, Bhima. You know my name. Bhima goggled at the splendid one. The monkey said, Bhima, my brother, I am Hanuman. 
A wild cry erupted from Bhima and the next moment they were hugging each other with tears streaming down their faces. Hanuman cried, Ah, the same thrill of love courses through me when I embrace you as I felt when I touched my Rama. Bhima felt his weakness leave him and a new strength, greater than anything he had before, flooded into his body. The Pandava prostrated at his legendary brother's feet. Hanuman raised Bhima up and then they sat together beside the jungle trail. Bhima was in no hurry anymore and chewed contentedly on the fruit Hanuman offered him. The hours flashed by and nothing the two did uh, and nothing the two did not talk about, from the battle of Lanka to the game of dice in Hastinapura. Once during the conversation, Hanuman grew thoughtful and said, Times have changed indeed, yet you do, not, do you know Bhima, my brother? Scratch them a little and there isn't so much difference between those days and these. Good and evil have always existed side by side and fallen into conflict, even like cats and dogs. He paused, gazing fondly at the Pandava. Then he patted Bhima's cheek and said, But it is true, you know, that finally goodness will prevail. So don't worry, you and your brothers will vanquish the Kauravas and the Kuru kingdom will be yours. I, Hanuman, assure you of this. Bhima said quietly, As long as you are with us, we cannot lose. I feel the new strength that you have blessed me with. Hanuman gave a laugh and cried, but I will do more in memory of this meeting with my little brother in the jungle. Your blessing is more than enough, said Bhima. But Hanuman's face had lit up and he said, I will sit on your brother Arjuna's banner during the great war. And you can probably, if there is a picture over there, you can see. So when he sits on the banner, you know, on the, on the chariot, it means the chariot is immovable under the greatest assault. I will sit on your brother Arjuna's banner during the great war and I promise you my roars will strike terror in your enemies' hearts and give courage to your own soldiers. Bhima hugged him again. Then he was suddenly embarrassed. Hanuman asked, What is it, child? There is something you are not telling me. Bhima blurted, I want to see you as you were when you leapt across the ocean. Hanuman laughed. Then he was still and the forest around them was also still and he began to grow. In a moment he was as tall as the tallest tree in the forest. The next he was as big as a hill. And then even bigger, big as the Vindhya, which is a famous mountain range. And he shone like a sun. Overwhelmed, Bhima knelt at his feet. In an instant, stupendous Hanuman, hero of another yuga, was his monkey self again. Somewhat Bhima's own size, and he laid a hand in blessing on the Pandava's head. They ate more fruit together. More news and fabulous tales Hanuman told his brother, both of them excited like boys at a meeting. At last Hanuman looked at Bhima with his eyes full of love. I have kept you here long enough. Hurry on Bhima and find the Saugandikas you have come for. The way ahead is fraught with danger, for this path leads into the spirit world. Strange things live in this jungle. It is a forbidden forest and you must go with some stealth. And he laughed. But my brother is a Kshatriya and no one on earth is as strong as he is. Why should I be anxious for him? It is those who cross his path who should beware. Bhima said wryly, unless they are old monkeys who are too weak to move. <laughs> they hugged each other again. Then Hanuman waved Bhima on and stood looking after him as the Pandava sped up the narrow trail deeper into the forest. When he was out of sight, Hanuman vanished from that place like a dream. Chapter 19 Where the Saugandika grows as Bhima loped deeper into the forest, the fragrance of the Saugandika was so strong that he knew he couldn't be far from where the flowers grew. Now it was not the scent of just one flower that filled the vana, but of a thousand, maybe a million Saugandikas. 
This must certainly be Swarga, heaven, that he had stumbled into, thought Bhima. Anyway, not even heaven could smell any sweeter. Soon the jungle was dense and trackless, and the Pandava plowed on through it, following just the ravishing scent. As he went, he had to thrust dark living liana out of his way, vines that grew thick as a man's arm and coiled themselves around any passing creature. At times the creepers clung so swiftly and fiercely, Bhima had to cut himself free with a sword. There were the most exceptional monkeys and birds in the branches, peering down curiously at him. Some called out in astonishment to see the intruder. The birds were so vividly plumed they were luminous in the twilight forest, and the monkeys had brilliantly colored faces like dancers' masks. There were other more dangerous beasts in that forest, but this was their time for sleep and none of them challenged the Pandava. Though wildflowers of every imaginable kind grew in the jungle, he crashed through. Only a single fragrance filled the air, the heady scent of the Saugandika. There were bigger flowers than the little scarlet one. There were lovelier ones, but none of these could match the wild and perfect aroma of the tiny flower Bhima had come looking for. When he had gone an hour after he left Hanuman, he heard the swishing flow of water and next moment broke into the sunlight of an open glade through which a cobalt river meandered. Its waters were indescribably blue, as if a bit of clear sky had fallen onto the earth and turned into a river. But it was not the incredible blueness or sparkling clarity of the river that held Bhima transfixed. It was the riot of minute scarlet flowers that grew on its velvet banks and upon its shimmering water. From the fragrance which hung over that place, they had to be the Saugantikas, all thousands and thousands of them. Had Bhima been a little more observant of his surroundings, he might have noticed the river's bank was a carefully tended garden, its shrubs and trees planted with order, its paths neatly laid. The water was gently dammed with earth, so it formed a pool on which the Saugantikas grew in thick beds. But Bhima was intent on plucking the flowers and taking them back to Draupadi as quickly as possible. He could hardly wait to see her face light up. Now the Pandava felt very thirsty. The way through the forest had been long and Hanuman's fruit lay heavy in his stomach. He strode up to the river whose clear water was so inviting and without thought to any danger knelt to drink. He did not see the many eyes that watched him from the trees. The moment his lips touched the sweet river water, angry cries shattered the silence and in a blink Bhima found himself surrounded by the weirdest beings he had ever set his eyes on more than a score of them. They were tall and lean, some were even handsome after a fashion, and though they were not Rakshasas, they were certainly not human. Their skin shone and their eyes seemed like faceted jewels set in their long faces, some blue as the river, some leaf green, some wine red. More bizarrely, some of them had their feet turned back from their ankles, and others had holes in their backs, while still others walked almost bent in two, their hands trailing the ground. All of them wore clothes that seemed woven from bird feathers, leaves and wildflowers, and some from large patches of butterfly wing. Bhima rose slowly and turned to face the eerie throng crowded hostilely around him. The leader of the bringing said grimly, Who are you, mortal, that you dare enter my lord Kubera's garden? Another whispered menacingly, Don't you know death is the penalty from dr for drinking from Kubera's river? Bhima did not flinch, only tightened his grip on his mace. After his encounter with Hanuman, he felt stronger and more unafraid than ever. Gazing back calmly into the glittering insect eyes of the leader of the motley crowd, Bhima said, I am Bhima Sena, the Pandava, Vayu's son and Kunti's. I have come to pick Saugandikas for my Panchali. 
The flowers belong to our king. No one may pick them, cried the leader of the Yakshas and Guhyakas. They were Kubera's people, the guardians of the nine treasures. But if you want flowers for your wife, you must come and ask our lord Kubera for them. He is generous and may give you some, but then again, he may not. Bhima snorted at the idea. Why should I beg for some flowers that grow on the river? I am a Kshatriya. The river flows free on the face of the earth. It does not belong to anyone, and neither do the flowers that grow on its water. I will pick the Saugandikas and see who stops me. With shrill cries, the Yakshas and Guhyakas attacked him. They carried short swords, some produced staffs and javelins, and they set on him from every side except where he had his back to the river. Bhima gave a roar that stopped many of those guardians in their tracks. Then he was at them like a tempest. He was so quick they could hardly see him, and so powerful they fell around him helplessly, heads smashed, bodies shattered by his mace, the clear river stained with blood. In no time those left alive fled from this fearsome mortal and back to their king in his palatial cavern, Kubera, lord of that jungle. Stepping nonchalantly over the corpses of those he had killed, Bhima waded into the river and began gathering Saugantikas by the armful. As he did so, he sniffed them in delight, his eyes shining when he thought how Draupadi would love them. When he had enough flowers and much more, since he was never one to do things by halves, he laid them carefully on the mossy bank. He stripped off his clothes and bathed in the cold water, washing off the blood of the Yakshas and Guhyakas he had killed. Meanwhile, those who had escaped arrived in some disarray before their king. Kubera was master of the treasures of the earth, a Lokapala and Shiva's friend. He was a deva, a god and his luster filled his twilight cave palace. He sat with twelve red hounds at his feet and surrounded by a colorful array of jungle folk, Yakshas, Guhyakas, Ganas, Siddhas, Charanas, Gandharvas, Nagas, Kinaras and Rakshasas, names of various semi-divine beings. Of all the secret sabhas in the world, Kubera's was the most opulent. Precious gemstones of incredible size and fire were embedded in the walls, and lofty ceilings of the maze of caves was that was his palace. He himself wore few ornaments on his dark skin, but every ring, bracelet, or necklace that adorned him, whether of diamonds, emeralds, huge rubies, or pearls, luminous as the moon, was a king's ransom. His throne was carved from a single sapphire, mined and cut in the earth's deepest past. It was the seat of his power. Kubera was a great sovereign of the earth. Now he saw his people run, in, run to him in shock. What happened to you? The Yaksha's leader cried, A terrible warrior appeared at the river. He drank your water and wanted to pluck Saugantikas to take with him. We tried to stop him, but he killed more than half of us. Even now he is picking flowers as he likes. Kubera murmured, One warrior and he slew half of you? What is he, a Gandharva, a Deva, a Daitya or a Danava? The tall Guhyaka turned his face down and whispered, No, my lord, he is a mortal. A murmur of disbelief hummed through the court. Kubera frowned for a moment, then a smile broke out on his face. He rose and said, I think I know who this mortal is. It is Bhima, the Pandava, come looking for Saugandikas for his Panchali. He is a friend. Come, we must go welcome him to our kingdom. Kubera strode out from his palace, followed by as wild and varied a train of subjects as any king in heaven on earth could hope to have. Many of them wore ashes, Jatta and Rudraksha. Jatta is the dreadlocks. Rudraksha, these beads. Uh, for most of Kubera's people are Shiva Bhaktas. They were all quite uncanny by any human norm. Some were as tall as two men, others short, but bright body. Some had more than one head. Some were so ugly you couldn't look at them, and others were as beautiful. There were changelings among them, who were wolves or serpents. 
at times, but at others almost human forms with jewels in their heads. There were centaurs, fawns and other lively creatures who were spirits at times and had bodies at others. Back at the river, Bhima felt very sleepy. The king's water had this effect on those who were unused to it. The Pandava came out of the river and fell asleep on the soft grass beside the flowers he had plucked. He thought he would take a short nap, but he slept longer than he expected to. In Badrikasuma, the day had worn into evening and there was no sign of Bhima. Yudhishthira grew anxious and Draupadi also. She said, The forest was dark and seemed menacing. One of the rishis of the ashrama added, Men have never been known to enter that forest. Mysterious creatures are said to live at its heart, but none of us has ventured there, so we couldn't say if the tales we hear are true or not. Yudhishthira said, No creature can harm my brother, but it can't have taken him so long to find the Saugandikas. Draupadi said, Let us call Ghatotkacha to take us to look for Bhima. So Ghatotkacha is Bhima's son, half demon and half human. So they did. In a few moments, Ghatotkacha stood before them, his black hands folded graciously. Yudhishthira said, Your father is missing since this morning. He went into the forest in search of Saugandikas and he has not returned. Ghatotkacha's eyes were worried. That is Kubera's vana. The Saugandikas grow on the blue river in the heart of the forest and they belong to the lord of the Yakshas. He does not take kindly to uninvited visitors. Yudhishthira cried, We must fly there now. Draupadi said, Take me with you. It was I who sent him. I can beg Kubera for his life. There was no time to argue and Yudhishthira gave in to her. Katotkacha picked him up easily and flashed away from, Bad- from Badrikasrama towards Kubera's darkling vana. The sun was setting over the mountain shoulder as they flew through the saffron dust, bathed themselves in its calid colors. In no time, by fading light, they saw a river like a sparkling thread below them, weaving in and out of the sable forest. Like a bird, Ghatotkacha came gliding down and landed in Kubera's garden, where they saw a most singular gathering. Amid a crowd of yakshas, guhyakas and others, and seeming to enjoy each other's company hugely, were Bhima and Kubera himself. Yudhishthira gave a cry of relief when he saw his brother and ran forward to embrace him. Bhima came to Draupadi with his hands full of saugandikas, and when he saw her smile, he clasped her to him in joy that he, was, that he had pleased her. They came before the Lord Kubera, and Yudhishthira and Draupadi paid obeisance to him. He laid a dark palm on their heads, blessing them. The Deva said, You must spend at least a week with me here in my Chaitra. That was the name both of his realm and his garden. But Yudhishthira hesitated. Lord, we came to the mountains to wait for Arjuna. Only today I was thinking that perhaps we should go further north, lest he arrive there. Stay with me for a week. Then return to Badri and Arjuna will come to the ashrama, replied Kubera. They spent a charmed week with the Lord of Treasures, and there was feasting in Chaitra by day and night, under sun, moon and stars, and the singing never stopped, nor did the dancing. The wine and the food were fresh and more delicious than any served in the courts of human kings, and much to Bhima's delight, there was no end to either. Katotkacha flew to the Badrikasrama and brought Nakula and Sahadeva back with him to join the others. Those are the remaining two brothers. The Pandavas made many friends in Kubera's gardens. Some were exotic and beautiful, some entirely grotesque, but their hearts were true without exception and they made Yudhishthira and his family welcome among them. Most of all, their mysterious and powerful king did. Chapter 20 Arjuna returns. For a magical week, there was uninterrupted festivity in Chaitra, wine, food and song. Draupadi learned to sing and dance with Yakshis, Guhyakis and forest Gandharvis. 
But at the week's end, Yudhishthira came to Kubera on his sapphire throne and said, My lord, we have been overwhelmed by your hospitality, but now we must return to Badrikasrama and wait for Arjuna, for our hearts are full of him. Kubera gave Panchali precious gifts from his legendary coffers. The, do- the jewels she had from him were not of the earth, but ornaments of the devas, of the gods themselves. There were diamonds, moonstones and rubies, and corals and pearls from the seas of worlds deep in the heavens. They were all stones of great power and fortune. At last it was time for the Pandavas to return to Badrikasrama. Kubera had the saugandikas that Bhima had plucked for Draupadi packed in reed baskets. They took his blessing before they left because they knew that for all his geniality, he was one of the masters of the earth, the Deekpala of the north, the lord of treasures. Yet not once during their visit did he seem any more than a wise and affable host, if somewhat ageless, since you could not begin to tell how old he was. Not once did he reveal his other pristine form to them, that of an awesome Lokapala. Back at Badrikasrama, the days and nights began to seem long as years to Draupadi and the Pandavas. Every morning they awoke in excitement that Arjuna would return to them today. But each day brought disappointment, and at its end they would lie in their beds, sleepless, wondering if he would arrive in the dead of the night. Yet the ashrama and his surroundings were tranquil and lovely, and they did not allow them, and it did not allow them to remain dejected. The trees of the nearby woods were all in bloom, draped in brilliant cloaks of flowers. They went on long walks together through the cedar groves, and even Draupadi was content in Badrikashrama. Bhima was always dancing attendance on her, going to absurd lengths to satisfy her every whim. He would climb the tallest tree or up to the most hazardous rock crevice to fetch a flower that took her fancy. And indeed, they were reasonably happy. But after they returned from Kubera's garden, all their thoughts were full of Arjuna. Five years had passed since he left them, and they could hardly bear the separation anymore. One day they were out on a rambling walk, the Pandavas, Draupadi and Lomasa, the sage who was going with them, Daumya and his Brahmanas and some of the Rishis in the pine forest of Badri when Nakula, who walked ahead of the others, gave a shout and pointed to the sky. Look, what is that? A light like a piece of the sun come loose, uh, uh, pulsing in the blue. Most of them had never seen anything like it, but Lomasa smiled. It is a Vimana from Devaloka, a chariot a ship from the heavens. The gleaming ship of the firmament hung perfectly still as if those inside it were seeking something on the mountain below. The Pandavas and the Rishi stood rooted. Next moment in a silent, thought swift streak of light, the Vimana flashed down to the earth and landed not five hundred hands from where the Pandavas stood. A door at its side slid open, a stairway made of mirrors slipped noiselessly to the ground and a Kshatriya climbed down those steps smiling from ear to ear. Arjuna screamed Draupadi and ran into his arms. Then Arjuna knelt at Yudhishthira's feet and Yudhishthira pulled him up and took him in his arms. Soon Bhima, Nakula and Sahadeva were hugging Arjuna and they were all laughing in absolute joy, tears in their eyes. Arjuna prostrated himself before Dhaumya. He bowed reverently to Lomasa and the Rishis of Badri and embraced the Brahmanas of Indraprastha. Such a reunion there was, and Draupadi just stood by, tears flowing from her dark eyes that never left Arjuna's face. It was as if she was seeing him again for the very first time, as she had long ago at her Swayamvara. Meanwhile, the elegant Sarathi Matali had come down the stairway that was a threshold between this world and another. Yudhishthira went forward to greet him with Lomasa and Dhaumya. Matali stood aside at the foot of the glass steps, and they began to throb with light. 
Indra, king of the Devas, came majestically down then. One by one the Pandavas fell at the gods' feet. He blessed them all and the rishis who stood tongue-tied. Indra carried a silver casket in his hands and he called Draupadi. She knelt before him and he pressed the casket into her hands. A small gift for my son's lovely wife. Indra turned to Yudhishthira. The time draws near when you will sit upon the throne of your ancestors in Hastinapura and the world will pay homage to her emperor once more. Destiny moves swiftly and the war on the edge of the ages is near. Another year and some months you have to spend in exile. I have brought Arjuna back to you and I thank you for the time he spent with me. You will find it was well spent for your, mother, for your brother is a master of the astras now. The astras are these divine weapons. No warrior on earth and perhaps none in Devaloka can match him anymore as my enemies discover to their cost. But I will leave that tale for him to tell. Indra clasped Arjuna to him one last time and Draupadi thought she saw a tear in the god's stern eye. The Deva said, I must leave you now and you must return to the Kamyaka Aranya. He raised a hand over them and climbed back into his crystal ship. Matali embraced Arjuna then with a wave at Yudhishthira and the others, he too climbed back into the Vimana. The stairway of mirrors withdrew without a sound. The Vimana began to pulse with light again until those who stood on the ground had to turn their faces away. In a whisper, the great ship flew up into the sky. Quicker than seeing, it was high above the mountain. Now it seemed Matali was having a little gentle fun. His craft was no longer a disc. Instead, a golden chariot had appeared in its place, drawn by six winged horses. Matali himself sat in plain view at its head, reins in one hand and a silver whip in the other. Behind him sat Indra, entirely glorious now. As those below watched spellbound, the white horses flashed straight up towards the sun and vanished, swifter than light. For a long moment the Pandavas stood staring after the Deva. Then the princes linked arms and made their way back to Badrikashrama. None of them spoke very much. Their hearts were too full at Arjuna's return. Often in turns the other Pandavas would go near their brother and hug him or just squeeze his hand as if to make sure that he had really come back. Draupadi still walked between Yudhishthira and Arjuna in a dream, holding both their hands, her gaze never leaving Arjuna's face. At times she would smile to herself in quiet bliss, and her eyes were full. Chapter 21, Arjuna's story. And maybe this is the last chapter we read for today. Back in Badrikashrama, the rishis had laid out a feast to celebrate Arjuna's return. When they had eaten, Yudhishthira said, Arjuna, tell us everything that happened to you since you left us in the Kamyakavana. Arjuna smiled. There was so much to tell. He himself was full of his most recent exploits in Devaloka. But he began with his journey to Indrakila and his first encounter with Indra. He told them about his tapasya and how Shiva had come to him as a hunter. He described his duel with the Vetala and how finally Shiva stood revealed before him and gave him the Pasupatastra, the greatest weapon in the world. Soon after the Lord vanished, the sky grew brilliant and the Lokapalas appeared before me, Varuna, Indra, Kubera and Yama. They all gave me their astras and the mantras to command them. Bhima said incredulously, You have the Lokapalas astras? Arjuna shut his eyes. He made an occult mudra with his fingers, whispered a mantra and those weapons appeared as golden arrows in his hands. With another mudra, another mantra, he made the astras vanish again. In fact, he had not truly invoked the Ayudhas, just their shadows. If a Deva Astra was summoned frivolously, it would consume the one who calls it, or even the very earth. 
Bhima was the most obviously excited at Arjuna's return. He would stroke his brother's face, take his hand, and his eyes would fill as often as Draupadi's. Arjuna told them how Matali arrived on Indrakila in his Vimana. He described the inside of that craft vividly in the flight to Devaloka. Like a poet, he described Amravati and his brother's smile to hear him. He was so unlike the quiet Arjuna to wax eloquent about anything. But the rishis of Badrikastrama hung on to his every word, as if Amrita was flowing from his lips. Amrita is nectar. Especially when he spoke of Indra's throne, which the world's worship. Arjuna did not mention that the Deva king made him sit on that very throne. He only told his brothers later when they were alone. Arjuna told them about the wine and the food in Amravati, its mountains and forests, Indra's garden, the Nandana, and the lucent river that flows there. He told them about his lessons at archery with Indra and how he had received the Vajra, Indra's thunderbolt. He spoke warmly of Chitrasena, who became his friend and master at music and dancing. Yudhishthira said with some interest, You must show us what you have learned from him. Now Arjuna said he was tired and would like to rest for a while, but he would continue his story later. The rishis of Badrikastrama politely left the Pandavas and Draupadi together. When they were alone, Arjuna said, I did not want to say what happened with the Apsara Urvashi when the holy ones were there. But you remember. Uh, <laughs> Panchali looked sharply at him and he blushed. She said in a tight voice, And what happened with the Apsara Urvashi? Arjuna took her hand, Not what you imagine. He told them how Urvashi came to him at the dead of the night, obviously to seduce him. Urvashi is the greatest, most beautiful woman in, in, the, in the heavens. She's a celestial dancer. She decides to seduce him when he's there. But things go a little sideways. Draupadi's eyes glittered dangerously when he described... So. <clears throat> He told them how Urvashi came to him at the dead of the ni- in the dead of the night. Draupadi's eyes glittered dangerously when he described how the Apsara made a midnight offering of herself. But she is a mother of the Kurus, and I told her I had only a son's love for her. That couldn't have pleased her, murmured Bhima. A smile was back on Draupadi's face that her husband had spurned an Apsara, somebody that Indra himself could not refuse. She said many of our ancestors had been to Devaloka as a reward for their punya, virtue, on earth, and none of them had refused her. Arjuna still shuddered to think of that night, but I couldn't see her as she wanted me to. I knelt at her feet and begged her to forgive me. Bhima laughed admiringly. She must have been angrier than ever. She She was, said Arjuna quietly. She cursed me. That fetched a gasp from his brothers and a cry from Draupadi. She whispered, What was the curse? That I lose my manhood and live among women singing and dancing as a eunuch. (laughs) Lovely Panchali gave a sigh and fainted. Bhima sprinkled icy spring water on her face and she woke up gasping for coldness, for its coldness. She moaned, Oh Arjuna, what will you do? Has Urvashi's curse affected you yet? The others stared anxiously at their brother. He said, Indra had her reduce the curse to one mortal year, the thirteenth year of our exile. And for that time it will be a blessing. Who will dream of looking for me in a harem of women? Draupadi breathed again and his brothers began to laugh. You might enjoy this curse more than you are meant to, observed Panchali. Bhima murmured, though not as well as he would like to. Yudhishthira <laughs> remembered, Rishi Lomasa told us about a task in Devaloka that Indra had for you. 
That is what kept me for so long. There seemed no end to my father's lessons at archery. And one day he called me and gave me his Vajra, his thunderbolt. That was the last Astra he had for me. You were always in my thoughts and I was anxious to return to the earth. But Indra said I must do something for him before I left. <coughs> one day a month before Arjuna had the Vajra from him, Indra called his son to him alone. You are a master of the Astras now and not even the Devas can face you in war, let alone any mortal. But you haven't been tried with battle and the time has come for you to give me Guru Dakshina. Guru Dakshina is this time-honored you know, tradition of you give a, a little gift as thanks to your Guru, your teacher. I told you there is something you must do for me. I will do anything for you, Indra said. I wonder if you truly understand the power of the Astras you have acquired. Do you think you could kill 30,000 Rakshasas for me as my Dakshina, demons? Arjuna was startled, but he would have agreed even if he had, did not have the Devastras. The Pandava asked, where shall I find the Rakshasas? The Nimata Kavachas live in the womb of the ocean of Devaloka, said Indra, and Arjuna saw his eyes misted over, for what reason he could not tell. They are sorcerers and very powerful. They were tapasvins once, people who meditated, and they have a boon from Brahma that no Deva can kill them, none of the gods, but only a mortal man. Our enmity is as old as Amravati itself, and for an age we have prayed for a Kshatriya who would rid us of the Nivata Kapachas. Their influence reaches down to the earth. Theirs is the power that Kamsa wielded. Kamsa is in Krishna's story, he is the evil one in Krishna. And Jarasandha, that you heard of before, was torn in half. The same power that now supports Duryodhana and his brothers as part of a web of evil spread across a thousand worlds. A malignant disease afflicts creation and it grows at the very heart of Devaloka. Arjuna, for this too you were born as my mortal son and for this task also you have come here to Amravati. Will you go to their city and take fire to the Rakshasas? Arjuna said, if it is in my power, I shall. The thought of his mission excited him, most of all the idea of using the Astras in battle. Arjuna was full of courage. He felt ten times the archer he had been before. Indra had the rishis of his sabha come and say some prayers over the Pandava. This was done with grave solemnity, with all the celestials gathered in the Sudharma, in the sabha. Gandharvas, Kinaras, Devas, Apsaras, Siddhas, Charanas, Nagas and the others. It dawned on Arjuna that the task ahead was not a simple one. The Pandava did not sleep well that night. With first light, Matali brought his Vimana to the steps of Indra's palace. Indra himself was there to bless his son. Arjuna looked into his face and saw a shadow of anxiety lest he, lest he fail his mission and Indra lose a son. Arjuna felt chastened. When he saw Matali also wearing silver, silvery mail and with every auspicious talisman he owned hung around his neck, he realized the terror that these demons inspired. Chitrasena had come to wish him success. Even the Gandharva was somber that morning. He pressed a golden locket of protection into Arjuna's hand and embraced him. Matali only said, Your Gandiva, that's the name of his bow, his very special bow, and quivers are in the Vimana, and the Vajra lies beside the Astras where you will sit. He paused before adding, Where only one mortal man has sat before. And who was he? asked Arjuna. A greater Kshatriya than anyone before or after him. But his was not a battle in heaven. Why didn't you ask him to fight the Nivatakavachas? <laughs> Matali laughed. That was before the Rakshasas came to Devaloka. And that Kshatriya's enemy was more terrible than they are, though he lived on earth. 
Tell me who the Kshatriya was, Arjuna cried, though he had heard the legend before and should have guessed. Pray for his blessing today before you set out, said Indra. It was Rama of Ayodhya for whom I sent the Vimana down to Lanka so he could kill Ravana. That's the other epic which we might get to reading someday. Pray for his blessing today before you set out. Arjuna knelt before Indra. All at once the Deva had a golden coronet in his hand, a jewel-studded Kirita. Indra set the crown on the Pandava's head. You shall be called Kiriti from now on, O Kshatriya of Amravati. He clasped Arjuna once tightly. Then the Pandava climbed into the Vimana after Matali. The stairway was drawn up and the Sarathi showed Arjuna another place where he should sit today. It was a high seat above Matali, which could be thrust out of the body of the crystal ship when the warrior who sat in it did battle. How proud Arjuna felt and how humble, sitting where immaculate Rama had once sat. He found that sweet seat swiveled to face every direction and prayed fervently to Sri Rama of old that he, Arjuna, should not fail today. At the edge of his mind was the nagging certainty that this battle was as important as any he would fight later on earth, and its outcome would decide those of the rest. Matali passed his hands across the glowing panel that made the Vimana fly, and the craft rose from the ground in a whisper, and they flashed away on their mission.